Hello, and welcome to a more perfect podcast. Over the course of history, nations change. In the space of a hundred years, Rome was transformed from a republic with democratic institutions into an empire under the control of one man. In 1917, Russia was transformed suddenly into a government led by deluded utopians known as the Soviets and became the United Soviet Socialist Republic. Millions would die before it ended. In 1949, China became the country we now know as the People's Republic of China under the Chinese Communist Party under Mao Zedong. Indeed, nations can change. Today, America faces that change. Today, America faces the most terrifying threat to our nation since its inception. Every so often, we come up against the test of who we are as a country, and we have to answer it. This is the time we are called to answer the test that we have been given by this age. We are called to preserve our way of life, preserve our normalcy in the face of those that wish to reject reality and supplant their ideology. What I am talking about is known, at least on the street, as the culture war. Everybody seems to have realized that we're going through a culture war right now, the present day. And then some people realize that the radical leftists have subverted, destroyed, and then are using our institutions of American life. Think the big banks, think big tech, think the CDC, they're using our institutions of American life to enforce their corrupt agenda of liberation. How else do you explain the CDC declaring racism a public health threat? Yes, indeed. Nations can change. And it seems like nowadays, even if you don't know we're going through a culture war, or that the left has been subverting and then gutting and then using our institutions for a while now, even if you don't realize all those things, everyone's realized that nowadays something that is normal, a-okay, one day will be a flashpoint in our culture war the day after. Who would have thought that being a police officer, something up until 2020 was largely taken for granted in American life, would become something so demonized? Of course, it was always demonized by a small segment of the population. And intrinsically, Americans are distrustful of the government. But by and large, we like our cops. So who would have thought that such a large segment of the population would come to demonize them? Something normal becomes something abnormal. Everyone has to have noticed that by now. You see... If you really want to know the truth, 
America's going through a cultural revolution. A cultural revolution alike to what China went through under Mao Zedong. There's a reason why I mentioned China earlier. This episode is going to tell you how what we're going through right now in America at the present moment as I speak is a mirror image of what China went through under Mao. And we'll also discover that these cultural revolutions don't end well. These cultural revolutions end in hell on earth. Before we get into all of this cultural revolution stuff and the gist of this episode, I've got to remind you guys really quickly, I'm sponsored by Surfshark VPN. If you want to secure your internet and anonymize your web browsing, check out Surfshark VPN with the link in my podcast description. You get 81% off if you click the link and purchase Surfshark VPN in my podcast description. Your internet could be being spied on right now. You need to anonymize it as soon as possible. So get Surfshark VPN and support the show. As I was saying, cultural revolutions end with hell upon earth. In fact, if you were to ask me what is socialism, I would say two words. Raising hell. Because that's what they do. That's what happens when you seek to place heaven upon earth. You seek to defy the inequality of nature and make everything equal under the sun. This is what happens when you try to play God. Yes, there's something incredibly dark and incredibly sinister about socialism, much more terrifying than what they'll tell you on Fox News or what you'll hear anywhere. There is something deeper about socialism than anyone realizes. It believes that we don't exist apart from what we're born into. And if we just change things, if we just strip away the contradictions, that we can achieve utopia. Socialism is a utopian delusion. It is, it is optimism as a political project. And socialism, as was written in a fantastic book titled The World Turned Upside Down by Yang Jisheng, socialism as a form of collectivism is predicated on the obliteration of the individual and can be achieved only through the evil of coercion. Yes, indeed, nations can change. The evils of socialism present such a lure to those who are unaware of what it is that it comes in many forms and it attacks in many ways. It's so antithetical to the reality that you and I know that, quite frankly, we can't imagine it until we look back in history. We can't imagine how something like this would be implemented until we look back in history. A cultural revolution is a strategy of socialism to implement itself upon the population by attacking 
what makes that country itself. By attacking history, by attacking literature, by attacking art, by attacking everything that makes America, America, a cultural revolution is realized. Indeed, a cultural revolution is not a hard revolution with, you know, tanks, molotovs, guns, etc. No, a cultural revolution is much more sinister, as is the system which it seeks to implement. As socialism is sinister, so is the method by which it uses to inject its viral DNA. So what is this injection method? What is this sinister method by which the totalitarian murderous system of utopian socialism asserts itself? Well, the cultural revolution, I mean, the term cultural revolution refers to a period in China's history under Mao. As I said earlier, Mao had a cultural revolution, and what we're going through now mirrors what happened. So, to explain what a cultural revolution is, we need to understand a little bit of Chinese history, and only a little bit. So, to understand what a cultural revolution is, I'm going to read from a book about the cultural revolution called Red Land, Yellow River, and it's written by Ong Zong. It'll be in the source notes if you'd like to read it for yourself. So, Ong Zong writes about the Cultural Revolution and his own experience going through it. And in the book, he writes this. See if you can gather a definition of what a Cultural Revolution is from this passage. He writes, In 1949, Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party overthrew the existing regime and created the People's Republic of China. Mao set about to completely transform the entire country. He wanted to take land from the landlords and distribute it to the people. He wanted to bring all business and industry under the control of the state. His reforms were drastic and sudden and led to great confusion, but he pushed ahead. In 1966, Mao decided that his revolution had not gone far enough. People's thinking hadn't changed. <laughs> what do you know? People actually like to, you know, live and prosper. <laughs> uh, the delusions of socialism. Where was I? So, so he launched the next phase of reform, the Cultural Revolution. Mao wanted to get rid of China's old ideas, old customs, old culture, and old habits, and replace them with new, better ones. The old ideas, he said, were held by the bad blacks. Property owners, intellectuals, writers, artists, factory owners, and even officials, or cadres of the Communist Party who were using their position to gain special privileges. Basically, think corrupted bureaucrats of the Communist Party. The new ideas, meaning Mao's ideas, 
The new ideas were held by the good Reds, the peasants, workers, and members of the army. So what is a cultural revolution? It's the abolition of old ideas, customs, culture, and habits. And the replacement of those things with socialist simulacrum. So the question becomes, how do you get an entire civilization an entire civilization to reject those things, the old habits, customs, all that stuff. How do you get them to reject that and embrace crappy socialist versions of the same thing? How do you do that? Well, you I mean, they're obviously not going to do it on their own. You have to do it by the, uh, the coercive methods of socialism. I mean, socialism is always precipitated by coercion. It's never very popular. It seems like it complains and complains and complains about a minority holding power, and then suddenly, when the socialists take power, it's a minority holding even more absolute power. It's uh, it's kind of like a projection, almost, but I digress. How, how do you get people to do that? Well, with some seriously subversive methods. You see, according to this book, Mao saw young people as the future of his revolution. They were loyal, brave, energetic, and idealistic. They would join together and build a new China where selfless, hardworking citizens put aside their individual needs for the good of the group. Right there you see the rejection of human nature. They're not taking into account that some people are greedy. Some people want to take advantage of others. Some people are not nice. They're rejecting the individuality of human nature and viewing humans as not human beings, but able to be manipulated by the surroundings. But it's a significant thing that Mao used the college students to effectuate his revolution. The college students were called the Red Guards. As Peggy Noonan wrote in Get Ready for the Struggle Session on March 7th, 2019, Mao unleashed university and high school students to weed out enemies and hold them to account. The students became the paramilitary Red Guards. They were instructed by the party to clear away the evil habits of old society and extinguish what came to be known as the four olds. Again, old ideas, customs, habits, and culture. Sweep away all monsters and demons, the state newspaper instructed them. And with a vengeance, they did. What do you see today on college campuses in America? What do you see in the YouTube videos with the pink-haired people. Where does it take place? Where do those videos usually take place? Where does Steven Crowder go for his Change My Mind videos? What was the average age of the revolutionary in the summer of 2020? It was the college students. It's my generation. We are the Red Guards. 
The college students were China's Red Guards. The college students are America's Red Guards. This is the very first similarity between Mao's Cultural Revolution and the American Cultural Revolution. It's being effectuated by the same group of people. The college students, the disassociated from society, the easily impressible. Lenin once said that, Give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. It's the same strategy, people. The Red Guards are today's progenitors of socialism. And the Red Guards are those who are coming out of our universities into the world to destroy it. The universities are creating activists, not academics. You need to realize this before it's too late. Another way that Mao's cultural revolution in China is similar to our own is the humiliation of professors of the university which don't serve the revolution at hand. Under Mao's cultural revolution, only the right ideas could be taught. Only Mao's ideas were to be taught in schools if you weren't teaching sufficient socialist ideology and applying that ideology as a lens to whatever you were teaching, you weren't teaching. You were being a counter-revolutionary and thus had to be taken down and destroyed. If you haven't seen it already, you should really watch the Evergreen State College documentary. I mentioned it in my episode with Evan from the University of Florida. It's a really good one, and it shows a struggle session literally happen within the story. I mean, you see this professor get cornered just right in front of your eyes, and there's nothing you can do, and it's really hard to watch. The struggle session is another way in which the Cultural Revolution is very, very similar to what America is going through. In The Cultural Revolution Comes to North America by Anastasia Lin, she writes, China did not become a tyranny overnight. Too many good people in my father's generation chose not to stand up for their neighbors, friends, or even family members when they were under attack. They learned to obey instead of challenge, to pick sides rather than think for themselves. They assented to obvious lies because they did not want the mob to turn on them next. Such practical-minded decisions to place reputation and safety above truth allowed evil to accumulate. Personal compliance became collective complicity. And China was lost to totalitarianism. Don't let it happen here. She wrote that about North America in 2019. 
What does that tell you about the cultural revolution happening in the United States? It's real, all right. As Peggy Noonan writes in Get Ready for the Struggle Session, also in 2019, in the struggle sessions, the accused, often teachers suspected of lacking proletarian feeling, were paraded through streets and campuses, sometimes stadiums. It was important always to have a jeering crowd. It was important that the electric feeling that comes with the possibility of murder be present. Dunce caps, sometimes wastebaskets, were placed on the victims' heads and placards stipulating their crimes hung from their necks. The victims were accused, berated, and assaulted. Many falsely confessed in the vain hope of mercy. Never apologize for something you didn't do. Were any guilty? It hardly mattered. Fear and terror were the point. A destroyed society is more easily dominated. The air is full in America. The air is full of accusation and humiliation. We have seen this spirit most famously, she writes, on the campuses where students protest harshly, sometimes violently, views they wish to suppress. Social media is full of swarming political and ideological mobs. In an interesting departure from democratic tradition, they don't try to win the other side over. They only condemn and attempt to silence. The cultural revolution is now. Another similarity between Mao's cultural revolution and America in 2021 is the renaming of streets to serve revolutionary ends. If you live in Washington and D.C., you're well aware of Black Lives Matter Square Plaza. It's There was a street that was renamed. It was made worldwide news. There's also a street in Tallahassee, Florida that was painted over. It was an intersection that was literally made a Black Lives Matter mural. All right? They're everywhere. They renamed the streets. They renamed the intersections. They renamed everything. Why did they do this? Because old customs habits, culture, the old way of life must be destroyed. The institutions make the man. There is no such thing as human nature. If we change what's around you, you will change, or at least they think. That's the internal impetus behind things like changing a street name. Colloquially, you would call that brainwashing. The fourth or I think it's actually fifth because I already went over um, struggle sessions. The the fifth similarity is the one of the most chilling ones, honestly, in, in in my personal opinion. It's year zero, year zero. So if you seek to uproot everything about a country. Everything about the current world, everything is problematic and must be replaced. You need to start from the beginning. 
from a year zero. And year zero is a concept that actually isn't necessarily from the Cultural Revolution in China. No, rather it's from way earlier. Year zero has been, to my knowledge, a concept since the French Revolution. Yeah, we're going way back now. As Frank J. Yacenda writes in When They Come For Your Eyeglasses, Cultural Revolution in America, published on July 8th, 2020, he writes, Suddenly, every historic figure ranging from George Washington to Christopher Columbus, from Teddy Roosevelt to Thomas Jefferson, from Andrew Jackson to Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator himself, has been targeted for erasure from the national record without sanction of any democratic process. This is a hallmark of cultural revolution wherever it occurs, wiping out history and declaring a new year zero the starting point of the revolution. It is disturbing to watch the inflamed furor of the crowds in the streets of America and their drive to destroy all remnants of history, in essence, declaring a new year zero, and then to compare it with the inflamed furor of the crowds in Mao's cultural revolution or the boy soldiers of Cambodian terror or that of many social spasms that have torn apart other countries and societies. This should give pause to anyone with even the vaguest appreciation for history or fear of the dark places where cultural revolutions lead. This is evil. True evil. They don't just want to take power. It's not just about power. It's not just about your country. It's about reforming the world. Restarting time itself from a new beginning. A godless beginning. A revolutionary beginning. Tearing down the statues is not just relegating those things, which should, according to them, be in the dust heap of history, (sighs) it's a lot bigger than what they'll tell you. Yes, indeed, nations can change. Tearing down the statues is yet another similarity between Mao's hell and our fire. Tearing down statues is formerly known as iconoclasm. Iconoclasm is the... Let me just explain the impetus behind it like I explained the impetus behind the changing of the street names, right? That's the changing of the society to change the man. Okay, so the 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 impetus to tear down the statue, right? There, 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 there's something deeper going on there. It's that... They want to destroy that idea, right? They want to destroy that idea of the thing and restart from year zero. So the reason that this is significant is that to destroy an idea is much more than destroying a statue. It's much more than destroying a book. 
It's much more than destroying a business. It's much more than destroying a physical object. No, no, no. <laughs> to destroy an idea eventually means to destroy a believer. Not that anybody believes in the Confederacy anymore, unless you're a deranged racist that wants to return to that horrific era in which human beings were enslaved. No, I don't think anybody believes in the Confederacy anymore. But what other statues were destroyed? What other statues were called colonizers? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson was called racist. Christopher Columbus was called an enslaver. This myopic view of history seeks to destroy ideas and it never ends well. To destroy a believer is the final step of those with a myopic view of history and an engine for total destruction. Iconoclasm is a prelude to woke horrors. Be warned. Well, just in case all this wasn't enough for you to say, hey, I think there's a cultural revolution going on in this country. Why don't you just hear it explicitly? You see, the founder of Black Lives Matter was literally, I, I, I cannot make this up, honored that her book was compared to Mao's Little Red Book. Don't believe me? Why don't you just listen for yourself? I was at the art publications table today, and I was speaking to this uh, young person from Arizona who's trying to fight uh, SB 1070. And I was, he, he, he grabbed the book and he said, it's like Mal's Red Book. And I was like, man, that's what I was thinking. And it was just really cool to hear him make that connection. I was like, how about you buy like 10 to 15 of these books and you all have like a youth, like, organizing group where you talk about it and you really try to engage this and we can just kind of we need to build off of this and so that leads me to um, a point that I, I actually wanted to kind of focus on today which is um, I think I have a, a really important role in speaking to youth I, I have maybe it's because I came in the movement at 17 and a half so I have like just a knack for knowing how to organize young people into this organization and kind of teach them this this politic and then hear them now organize other people. I mean, obviously, there's a lot there. First, you see that, indeed, it, it really is young people being the freaking Red Guards. Second off, they're literally Red Guards. Yes, she's honored to be compared to the man that killed tens, if not hundreds of millions of people. The death count is still undetermined. This is who we're dealing with. This is the threat to America. And it never changes. Over and over and over. From then, under Mao, to now, you hear about privilege. Yeah. <laughs> Mao himself wrote about privilege. I bet you didn't know that. Well, now you do. Mao Zedong wrote about Han Chauvinism. Han Chauvinism was 
well, first you need to know what Han Chinese are. Han Chinese are the dominant racial group in China. They are like white people in the United States, okay? They're the majority of the population. And China dealt with its own race issues throughout its history, right? The United States is unique in its race issues, but China dealt with its own. Well, China rejected white supremacy or <clears throat> Han chauvinism. It's the same thing, interestingly enough, along the same lines. Oh, yeah. Communism. Communism never changes. One of the final similarities between the cultural revolution and, and the American hell is that both the cultural revolution in China and the cultural revolution in the United States are radically anti-capitalist. We have a book called How to Be a Proletarian, <clears throat> How to Be an Anti-Racist, and woke propaganda everywhere telling us that capitalism is bad and that the only the top 1% of the 1% benefit. There's no such thing as a good capitalist. We all serve the same system. There's no actual choices under this system. We have no real representation. It goes on and on and on. The critiques go on and on and on and on and on. They're literally endless because they've literally never stopped. Socialism never stops. It's a delusion. It's a, it's a, it's the biggest lie to ever hit the earth. I, I wish I could just keep talking about it, but I really want to stay focused on this episode. I know, I know that a lot of this can seem overwhelming, but trust me, it's incredibly important to understanding our present moment. Well, let's just read a section from Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist and read exactly how they call capitalism racist. To love capitalism is to end up loving racism, Kendi writes. To love racism is to end up loving capitalism. The conjoined twins are two sides of the same destructive body. The idea that capitalism is merely free markets, competition, free trade, supplying and demanding, and private ownership of the means of production operating for profit is as whimsical and ahistorical as the white supremacist idea that calling something racist is the primary form of racism. Popular definitions of capitalism, like popular racist ideas, do not live in historical or material reality, Kendi writes. He says, Capitalism is essentially racist. Racism is essentially capitalist. There's how to be an anti-racist. You want to know what an anti-racist is? It is a proletariat. An anti-racist is a critical race theorist. An anti-racist is a liberal. Or, I'm sorry, an, an anti-racist is a liberator. An anti-racist is a social justice warrior. All of those things are communist revolutionaries. Change the language, they surely won't detect us now. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's the same freaking lie, people. I went over that in the last episode, I'll say it again here. It's the same damn lie. Yes, capitalism is racist. 
Yes, capitalism is unequal. Yes, capitalism is oppressive. Yes, yes, yes. All day long, the critiques continue. But the similarities finally show themselves, don't they? Yes, indeed. We are going through a cultural revolution. And we must stop it. You know, some people think that this is all going to blow over. Some people think that socialism died with the USSR. Some people think that all the backwards nations now that hold socialism as their guiding principle, like Venezuela and North Korea, are pretty insignificant, and that socialism as an idea was widely discredited and just abandoned. Everyone knows it was discredited, but most people think it was abandoned for the most part when the USSR fell. To those people who think that this moment will blow over, that think that all of this is just going to end one day and it's all just going to go away, let me read you this. This is an excerpt from an essay by Roger Kimball titled The Death of Socialism. He writes, But I cannot help receiving the news of socialism's death with a certain skepticism. For one thing, the fact that an idea has been so thoroughly discredited does nothing to render it impotent. It is part of the perversity of human nature that discredited ideas are often the most successful ideas. Then, too, I see little evidence that socialism's fundamental tenet, namely the ideal of equality, is on its way to the dustbin of history. The wheels of egalitarianism may grind away more slowly in liberal democratic countries than in communist ones, but grind away they do. It would be pleasant to think that in leaving history's bloodiest century behind, we have, al we have also left behind the passions that sparked its unprecedented carnage. But time and again, history has taught us that the hunger for equality is among mankind's most brutal passions. It is for this reason that I believe that the, that the philosopher David Stowe was correct when he identified bloodthirstiness as a central ingredient in the psychology of egalitarianism. Socialism will be conquered to the extent that, it, that egalitarianism is conquered. In the meanwhile, I fear that Stove is correct that very far from communism being dead, as some foolish people at present believe, we can confidently look forward to bigger and better Marx's, Lenin's, Stalin's, Mao's, Kim Il-sung's, Pol Pot's, Cizeska's, Bader Menhoff's, Shining Paths, and all the rest. Indeed, socialism is not dead. Indeed, things like this don't blow over. And as I said in the beginning, indeed, nations can change. Stand up to it or lose your whole country. You're watching it happen. You're watching it happen. Anyways, are you convinced? Do you believe that America is going through a cultural revolution? If you are convinced, then 
just to leave you with a little chaser here. Perhaps you'd like to know how a cultural revolution ends. Well, Frank J. Yacenda has some more answers for us. He writes, No matter what their original motivations or justifications, cultural revolutions almost universally end in the wholesale slaughter of anyone not deemed sufficiently ideologically pure to those who wind up as the self-appointed leaders of the revolution. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. It's my butchered French. Some 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 French guy is going to get offended because I do have listeners in France, so uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I don't even know how to say I'm sorry in French. My French is horrible. <laughs> liberty, égalité, fraternity. It means liberty equality, and brotherhood, which sound like pretty good things to aim for, turned into repression, imprisonment, and death for many, both those on the wrong side of the cultural and political divide and just ordinary innocents who got in the way of the murderous tide. That's the French Revolution, by the way. That was their slogans versus what it actually turned into. It doesn't end there, though. Another example presents itself to us. The Red Terror of the Bolshevik Revolution. There is a reason I mentioned that in the beginning of this episode as well. The Red Terror of the Bolshevik Revolution executed somewhere north of a quarter million people, but by the time the Russian Civil War had run its course, the dead totaled at least 1.5 million, not counting the 3 million people who died of typhus, just in the chaos of 1920 alone, or the tens of millions who died in the subsequent decades under the Soviets, into whom the Bolsheviks transformed. And then there was Chairman Mao's decade-long cultural revolution, which racked China from 1966 until 1976. Like all the other big social spasms, There is no agreement on the number of dead, and a a million or two is considered a rounding error. But by China's own official numbers, nearly 2 million people died, and another 125 million people were persecuted or struggled against in brutal harassing and often fatal struggle sessions, in which their cultural impurities were challenged by the Red Guards, and their peers, colleagues, students, tenants, and even their own children. If all those who died as a result of the revolutionary insanity promulgated by Mao over the decades are included, estimates run as high as 80 million dead. That's how cultural revolutions end up. Don't let it happen here. I ask you again, Are you convinced there is a cultural revolution going on? If so, you might want to protect yourself. You might want to anonymize what you're viewing online. Well, have I got a deal for you. Surfshark VPN can help you do just that. You see, as the leftists have executed a war of attrition over our society, they've taken over the institutions. And big tech, as most people know by now, is incredibly biased and left-leaning. 
considering what you know now about socialism and the effects of leftism throughout history, and hopefully I've convinced you that we're going through a cultural revolution right now akin to what Mao went through, uh, 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 akin to what Mao's China went through, excuse me, hopefully I've convinced you of that, then do you really trust, do you really trust your internet browsing to these leftist institutions? I wouldn't. You gotta get Surfshark VPN. 81% off of Surfshark Surfshark It's a bit of a tongue twister. Surfshark VPN if you go and purchase it using the link in my bio. Not only that, but you help me to reach people with the truth about what's going on in our country. So it would really help me out, and I can create content that you're going to love. So it's a win-win. I mean, you anonymize your internet, you get to listen to me. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, it's so, it's so cool. It is so incredibly cool. So check out Surfshark VPN if you want to anonymize and secure your internet. Apart from that, I got to be honest with you guys. I'm having a bit of trouble posting on social media. My posts aren't seen by my own followers. I need your help. I need your help to tell your friends about this, even one friend. If, if you can tell one friend about what I say, it would mean the world to me. It helps this podcast grow because I can't grow the traditional way. All the social medias are suppressing what I say. I... I've talked about this again and again on this podcast, but it's really hard for me to advertise. And honestly, I, I I really wish I could just say, leave a review, but I need you to tell your friends about this podcast. I need it, okay? If you could tell a friend or family member about this podcast, I would really appreciate it. As always, if you review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, if you like this episode... If I convinced you that we are going through a cultural revolution, then uh, leave a good review. Leave a good review. Tell me what you want to see on this podcast. I read those reviews. They are some of the best things that I look forward to every day. You know, I, I, I legit check it and I was like, did anyone leave me reviews? It's, it's, a, it's a really good thing. So leave a review. Tell your friends. Until next time, have a more... Perfect day.